You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Hey, so take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We did verse 12. We started in verse 12 on Sunday, and we looked uh, at verses 12 through uh, 28. And uh, that's on the website if you missed it and want to take a look at it. uh, Listen to that. Paul, although he is an apostle, he's sent by Jesus, even though he is a um, a pastor in that he cares for the people that he is uh, teaching and writing, the churches that he started, all those things. Paul is also a preacher. Uh, uh, we have to remember that is that, is that he is a preacher. Uh, and one of the things that preachers do is they try to communicate truth um, as best as they can. Uh, Paul was known for his written word that uh, the things that he would write down in that form of communication were really bold and powerful. And in person, uh, there's the report that he didn't seem to have like this imposing presence. He wasn't like Charles Spurgeon, like 300 pounds at the pulpit, voice carrying out through the Metropolitan Tabernacle, that kind of a thing. He had, uh, by all accounts, uh, he was bald. He kind of had a mousy little voice. He wasn't very strong. He was kind of sickly at times. And yet the things that he would write were extremely powerful. And so Paul, being a preacher, uh, he does what preachers do. He uh, says the same things uh, about three different ways to try and communicate one idea, which is kind of what he does beginning in verse 12. And so he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all most people to be pitied. So like in three different ways, Paul says, hey, if, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus didn't raise up from the grave. And those of us who believe upon Jesus right now, if there is no resurrection, which means that Christ didn't rise up from the grave, Paul says something very profound. He says, we of all people are to be pitied. We, we, we who believe upon Jesus for salvation, who believe that not only he died on the cross for our sins, but rose up from the grave, assuring us, promising us eternal life. If that's not true, then we as followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, are actually to be pitied in the world. Stop and think about how people respond and react to Christians in the world when they uh, uh, encounter someone who's, who's devout in their belief, someone who claims the truth of scripture and they disagree with them or they, you know, they, they aren't a believer. They don't believe specifically in Jesus or they're atheistic in the sense that they don't believe in any kind of deity at all. Those people look at Christians and we could say they, they either make fun of them or they disagree with them. They argue with them. But at the root of it, this is what's taking place. People who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus look at people who spend their life and pour out their life 
in devotion to Jesus and go, you guys are fools. Remember Mr. T? I pity the fool, right? Like that's, what's, that's how people view Christians. They pity us because they look at our conduct and our life and just go, why are you all like so religious and why are you so devoted to this thing based on some guy who lived thousands of years ago, right? That's how the world looks at Christians. And so as often as the case in these sections of scripture, oftentimes looking at the end of the section of scripture helps inform what's going on at the beginning of it. Uh, Paul is, uh, as preachers do, He's taking this approach of sort of laying things out there to sort of stir the imagination and thought of his listeners. And he's saying, hey, if this is true, if there is no resurrection, as is being reported in the church, that's the thing. This message is being taught in the church. There are people in the church going, there is no resurrection. And so what's happening is that pagan teaching from the world is entering into the church. That's why he says at the end of this section of scripture in verse 32, as Paul is is talking about uh, his own testimony partly, he says, if the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now he's not saying "This this is what you should do. He's saying if there is no resurrection, then why are we devoting ourselves to Jesus? Why are we being disciplined in our actions, our thoughts, our life, our conduct, our speech? Why are we giving ourselves over to be persecuted if Jesus didn't actually raise up from the grave? He goes, if that's true, there is no resurrection. Why don't we just be like the rest of the world and just go party, eat and drink? We may not be here tomorrow. Enjoy this moment as it is. Yet here's the key for us in this. Take a look at verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, and and that's the word that if you want to underline it, if you want to sort of make note of it, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul really begins to get to the point of answering this issue that's been raised in the church. We'll learn later on that there was this concern about people who had died uh, as fellow believers in Christ, that they will have, that they would miss the second coming of Christ. And so in teaching about this resurrection, that there is a resurrection that Jesus did raise up from the grave, Paul begins to answer two specific questions. One in regard to pagan teaching that is being brought into the church to try and take people away from devotion to Christ. And then he begins to also answer the question of the fear that Christians had, that this misunderstanding, they didn't understand this yet, that Jesus is coming back and those who have died, if they believed on Jesus, they'll raise up from the grave to be with Christ. He begins to answer both of these questions. But here's the thing that I want you to, to, to latch onto when I say that word fact, and, and take note of that, underline that, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Remember that Paul, at the beginning of chapter 15, restates the gospel and begins this tradition of creedal statements like we talked about last week. These statements that define what we believe. They summarize and define the faith that we hold to. Regardless of what denomination or, or, or uh, history that you have in the church, there are these ecumenical creeds, statements of what we believe. And chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, is quite possibly the earliest or second earliest creed that was known in the church. 
And it says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that's great. That's fine. Paul makes the claim. Jesus raised up from the grave. That's fine. Here's the fact part. Here's the part that we connect as in our faith, not as blind faith, saying, I just, I have this sense that Jesus is real. And oh, my heart stirred when I heard that worship song and that one preacher and I just felt drawn and it was the, oh, the goosebumps that I had. No, there's reason and and evidence for why we believe what we believe. And here's what Paul says in verse five, 15, five, and that he, Jesus appeared to Cephas or to Peter and then to the 12. Here's what we have historically taken in it written down in the scriptures is that Peter the apostle saw Jesus after he was crucified after he was crucified and buried in three days Jesus rose up in the garden of Gethsemane there Peter saw him he interacted with him and there's record of that in Peter's own writings then it says then he appeared to the twelve to the rest of the disciples, now he doesn't even mention Mary, the Marys that were at the tomb, who delivered the message to the apostles to meet Jesus in Galilee. But Jesus then appeared to the 12. So it wasn't just one person going, oh yeah, no, 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 I saw Jesus. It wasn't just one person who, who claimed it and wrote it down. It was then 12 people who saw him and then made record of it, Okay. Well, but those were his disciples, of course. They were all sort of corroborating their stories together and they made sure that they were kind of telling the same story. And so how can we really believe that? Well, Paul takes that on as well by saying that that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. In verse six, he says, then he appeared to more than, mark it, 500 brothers at one time. And mark this, this is important. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Falling asleep just means passed away. He says, as I write this to you, Corinthians, some some scholars believe uh, 20 years after the death of Jesus, this was written sometime in 54, 55 AD, right? And Jesus died approximately 33 AD. So they're thinking it's about 21, maybe 22 years later. Some scholars think it's even earlier than that, like 44 to 48. Most, Most think 54 to 55. Regardless, Within about 20 years, Paul is writing this. He's saying the people, 500, who actually saw Jesus, not just Peter, not just the 12 disciples who were close to Jesus, but 500 people. Any court of law in any (laughs) land that you want to live in, when someone's accused of a crime and you have 500 witnesses who will all attest to seeing the same thing, what ends up happening is that the, the prosecution has to stipulate. They say, we get it. They're all, fi- all 500 witnesses are going to claim the exact same thing so that they don't have to actually bring all 500 witnesses up, right? In, in a court of law, in a legal case of some kind. The fact that there's attestation of 500 people who say, we saw Jesus. This isn't just some myth. The resurrection isn't just something that we take on faith and go, we believe that it happened because it makes our heart feel good. No, it's, it's, there's evidence that we can hold on to. Now that is evidence within the tradition, but you can also go outside the tradition, meaning outside of the faith and corroborate those claims by non-biblical sources. 
I mentioned it on Sunday. Josephus was a Jewish historian who took record of what was taking place in uh, Jerusalem at that time. And he is accepted as, a, uh, as an accurate scholar historically. And he gives the account of this supposed savior, Messiah, who was reported to have been raised up from the grave. So you can check that. One of the things that I think is incredibly important in, in our faith is to be able to be confident of its truth. Not just its reality, but its truth. I wanna, I wanna give you um, just a couple of resources for your own study. And I, and I highly encourage this kind of study because I think for us to be able to give answer to our faith, we're called in scripture to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, right? And I think a lot of times we as Christians, depending on what culture we were raised in, we simply err towards the side of, well, I just feel like it's real. I just feel it. And, and I just believe, right? And there's an element of that. We have to take a step of faith in believing things that, quite frankly, sometimes are unbelievable. But the reality is, is that we also have concrete evidence and examples of the truth of what we believe. I read this statement, or I, or I gave this statement to you guys. I mean, this is almost, I don't know how long ago this was, but we were meeting in the community center. But in regard to evidence of why we believe what's reported in the scripture to be true, I'll, I'll say this, and I'll say it slowly. You don't have to repeat it, but for the purposes of the recording, if you want to go back and listen to it. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of verifiable historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And they claim to be divine rather than human in origin. There is so much evidence for the truth of what we believe about Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. I'll give you two resources that if, if you have any ambition at all to be educated in these, in, in these things, um, these two are huge, huge helps in that. Uh, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, powerful, powerful book. He was an atheist, wife converted. He was a journalist uh, and was trying to, and approached the, the concept of Jesus and salvation from that angle as an atheistic journalist and went through the evidence and just combed through it and interviewed experts and just tried to disprove it at every turn. And at the end of that trail of investigation, he came to know the Lord because there was no more objections that could be made. So The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, huge, huge book. That's, that one's great. I mean, not huge in size. It's an easy read. The other is Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. J. Warner Wallace. Cold Case Christianity. Great, great book. He was a uh, Los Angeles uh, homicide detective. Same kind of thing. A guy with this sort of analytical, critical mind going, what is it with all these Christians? And, and why is it that they believe what they believe? And goes through the process of being able to just systematically use the evidence that's presented to prove this reality. And so when Paul says this, but in fact, Christ had been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's not saying this on, hey, people, just take it on faith. He met Jesus personally. He's in relationship with people who saw Jesus personally after 
the resurrection after he died and was buried and was, and was resurrected. So when he says this is a fact, this is a fact. And so he continues on and says, for as by man came death, by a man uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead. We talked on Sunday about why resurrection is what we proclaim. When we take of the Eucharist, of the table of communion with the Lord, we're proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. But we in our lives, the fact that we are new creations in Christ, we are going out into the world as living testimonies of Jesus' resurrection. He died in the flesh. He was raised up to life uh, in the spirit. In the same way, we, when we believe upon Jesus for salvation, uh, in the sign of baptism, are buried. Our old man is washed away and done away with. We are raised up in newness of life spiritually. And we'll see that again in just a second. He says here in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's a clear eschatological framework here. Eschatology meaning the study of the last things, the end times, if you will, a a common phrase that's used in the church. There's a clear order here that is important to take note of because what it does is it gives us information about what the church in its earliest incarnation and form believed about the coming of Jesus in, in, in that earliest stage, what they and how they lived in regard to what they believed. Listen again to what Paul says. But each in his own order. First, all die in Adam, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits means Jesus had to raise up first. Before any of us could expect eternal life, Jesus had to raise up from the grave. Christ the first fruits. Then, mark this, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 talks about this. How? Those who have died in Christ, meaning those who have fallen asleep or died believing upon Jesus, when Jesus returns, they will be resurrected. They will be resurrected and given new bodies that are like Christ's. And then we'll see in just a little bit, those who are alive at that moment when Christ returns, it, Paul will say, at that, the sound of that trumpet, that clarion call that signals the return of Jesus, those who are alive in a moment will be changed to become like him. The point of saying this is first Christ the first fruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. This was the expectation of the church, the disciples of Jesus Christ, from the moment that he left, that he ascended into heaven, until throughout the history of the church, the church believed in the imminent return of Christ. What that means is that Jesus could come back at any moment. Imminent means it can happen at any moment, at any second, any time. The church has always lived with the expectation that we are to be ready for the return of Christ. And when they talk about the return of Christ, it is always in reference to the establishment of his kingdom. That's what the return of Christ is the signal of. Jesus coming back to earth to take into full possession what is his and redeem it back to the Father so that the new heaven and the new earth can reign in its place. 
The church has always believed in the imminent return of Christ, meaning there's nothing else we're waiting for to happen before Jesus comes back. Now, throughout the history of the church, as we've gotten further and further away from Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, as we've gone further and further away and things have started to happen historically, people have begun to sort of doubt this imminence and start to look for other explanations as to why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Oh, we're going to read into the Old Testament prophecies and look for some special code to figure out to go, oh, such and such has to happen before Jesus comes back. Or look at the book of Revelation as a literal playbook to the end of the world and claim all of these things have to take place, then Jesus can come back. The church has never lived in that understanding. It has always lived from the time of Christ and should live even now with the expectation that Jesus could come back now. That in fact, as we've read before, is the hope, the blessed hope of the church, the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. That's an important thing to understand. It's sort of quietly in there. And yet Paul says, this is the order of things as they will happen at the end of time. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, meaning God himself will not be subject to the son. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. One of the mysteries of our faith is the Trinity, understanding the identity and relationship of the persons of the Trinity, one substance, one God, three persons, three express personalities and ministries, and yet one God. Again, there's lots of attempts to try and understand that, and yet there's something about these types of truths that rather than trying to academically understand and explain them, we have to become comfortable sitting in tension, sitting in mystery, and being able to contemplate it and go, Lord, obviously it's true. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I don't 100% get that. That's okay. That's okay. Understanding the Trinity isn't the key to salvation. Believing upon Jesus and his sacrificial atoning death on the cross and his resurrection is essential for salvation. We can understand that one. There's eyewitness testimony to that. But the understanding of the relationship of the Trinity and, and other mysteries that are presented to us in Scripture about who God is and how his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and the things that he says are good and right and, and the things that he allows in, in our lives that we just don't understand... There's a place where we have to come where we sit in that tension and we have to contemplate those mysteries and go, God, I don't get that. But here's, here's the beauty of that. I can get lost in study. I don't do a whole lot else but, but spend time doing this, like, like reading and, and looking at history and trying to figure out what the Bible is saying and what it means and how to apply those things. Ecclesiastes is really clear at the end of Ecclesiastes. It says, you know, the end of writing books, there is no end to the writing of books and constant study can become weary, weariness to the flesh. There's only so many things that we can comprehend. There's only so many things that we can fully wrap our mind around and understand. 
And so there is value and there is a place for us just to sit and go, Lord, there's some things I just don't get. But I'm just gonna sit with those. I'm gonna sit in that tension. I'm gonna let that wash over me and I'm gonna ask, Lord, that you actually just reveal yourself to me in those things. Show me what it is that that I need to draw from the mysteries that I don't understand fully. Praise God for the mysteries that you don't understand fully. A God that we could fully comprehend and understand isn't a God worth worshiping. A God that we get to control and treat like a magic genie isn't actually a God. And so there's these types of mysteries that present themselves throughout scripture that we have to become comfortable with understanding. But the end of it in verse 21, as Paul says, is that God may be all in all. He is above all things. He is over all things. And he is sovereign in those things. Paul then begins to relate in uh, verse 29. That relationship that the church has been expressing or has been um, looking to in regard to friendship with the world. Paul says in verse 29, otherwise, again, speaking of the the reality of resurrection, 29 says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? He's not talking about the church baptizing people on behalf of the dead. He's talking about the pagan practice, the pagan ritual of baptizing people in the name of an ancestor or someone who had died previously seeking their benevolence or blessing on their life. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? He's, he's using the argument of going, hey, if you in the church, who it's been proclaimed to that there is a resurrection, if you don't believe it, well, how is it that those who are not in the church, pagans, they believe in resurrection? How is it that you don't even while we've preached that to you. Again, he's using this sort of preaching tactic method of just going, how is it that you don't believe this? Then he goes on in verse 30, uses the personal example. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Paul's saying, why would I and the other apostles risk our life, put our life on the line, choose to live in poverty, choose to put ourselves in danger if this were not true? If there was no resurrection, if we were just pulling your leg, if we were trying to just uh, coerce you for money by this, by this tact of talking about the, the resurrection, why? there's other ways we could do that. We don't actually have to put our life on the line. He says, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, there's no record of Paul necessarily fighting an animal. And so some people believe that it's a reference back to those who were persecuting him and the other apostles, his companions as well. And he says, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul says, if this is true, there's no resurrection. Let's just go have a drink. Let's just go party and let's go just enjoy the day because who knows what's gonna happen tomorrow. It doesn't really matter. Then Paul gives the answer in the very next verse, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Remember, Paul is talking to the church. 
There's already been his correction of people who were coming to the love feast, the, the meal that they would share together, supposed to share together. And those who were rich didn't actually share with the poor. They'd bring their food, but they'd hoard it to themselves and eat their delicacies while others go hungry. People, as they were supposed to be bringing wine and sharing the wine for communion to, to remember the blood of Jesus Christ being shed for us, rather they would take their own wine and go, I'm not going to share that. And they would drink it themselves and they'd get drunk at church. And so Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from this drunken stupor that sort of just kind of laid itself upon the church, this cloud of confusion of like, we don't know who's supposed to be doing what. These guys are all speaking in a foreign language. These women, women are talking out of turn and trying to rule the church. These people are getting drunk over here. Paul's saying, wake up for your, from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. This is a accusation against the church at Corinth. That there were those who were a part of the church, meaning they were participating and living life as though they were a part of the body of Christ who had no knowledge of God whatsoever. That is a harsh rebuke. It's a harsh accusation, but it's one that historically we have seen be tr become true over and over and over again. And while it's not our place to judge people in regard to their salvation as the Lord is the only one who knows their hearts, what we are called to do in the congregation of God's people is to use discernment to know that if someone is behaving incorrectly, it is the responsibility of the church to take that person and either attempt to correct them and bring them back into the fold of God's people or to cut them off from that fellowship so that they would go and their flesh would be destroyed. Paul uses that example that he had to give up a couple of guys to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. This is where we see historically what's called church discipline, something that does not happen in the modern church in any practical sense. And far too often, there has been allowed within the church because of, well, we know their heart, we know the intent, we know we want to see them come to the Lord, all these kinds of things, where there have been heresies and uh, misteachings and uh, uh, abuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that have been allowed in the church because of this fear of confrontation, of, of the discernment of God just going, no, that's not right. You can't bring that into the church. You can't come to church and get drunk and claim that you're moving in the Spirit. You, you can't come to church and, and claim that there's no resurrection of Jesus and just assume that you get to continue being the part, a part of the body of Christ. And what Paul says here in verse 23, don't be, or 33, don't be deceived, he says. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company corrupts good character is another translation of that. This is one of those things practically that we have to hold on to and understand that who we hang out with, who we have fellowship with, the nature of the relationship that we have with people, we have to understand that because we may, although we might be new creations in Christ, we may be saved and, and our sins forgiven, because we're still battling the flesh, we're still fighting against sin, understand that there is the reality and possibility that if we put ourselves in places of temptation, what's going to happen is that under that weight and pressure of temptation, when we're separated from the body of Christ, when we're separated from other Christians to encourage us, and we're around people that are simply just doing things that are bad, that are against the Lord, that's going to win. 
The dark side's going to win at that moment. I know we all like Star Wars and we all think it's, it's the, the, the force versus the dark side, right? And no way the dark side's not going to win even when it looks like they've knocked, knocked down, you know, uh, Rey and Kylo Ren and whoever it is. And at the end of the movie, they, everybody thinks they're dead. And then Kylo Ren's hand comes up and he climbs up over the cliff, right? And gives his life force over to Ren and the power. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody, everybody wants to believe that good will overcome evil. In this world... When we are separated from the tools that God has given us to hold ourselves accountable to the goodness that he has imparted to us through his spirit, our flesh will still win. Our flesh will still win. And so darkness will overcome light in the sense of our behaviors. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. If you let the people into the church and allow them to be practicing drunkenness at the table of communion and dishonoring the Lord in those things, if you allow people to come into the church and disrupt the service with a misuse of the gifts, he goes, that's going to corrupt what is good here in the midst of God's people. You have this precious gift, this gospel that's been handed down to you. And your responsibility is to take it and hand it down to the next generation. You're to teach these truths and hold on to them and continue in them. He says, if you allow those other behaviors to come in, you will be corrupted. That's the warning that Paul gives. And so he jumps into verse 35. And he says in 34 at the end, he says, I say this to your shame. Meaning that was happening in that place. In verse 35, he goes into a long explanation of how resurrection works, not just the fact that it's true, but how it works. And in essence, he says, for something to live, something has to die. Here's what he says. But, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, he says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Again, Paul uses this analogy using an agricultural analogy, which that culture would understand, uh, sowing seeds into the ground so that you could then reap the fruit of it. In 38, he says, but God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another kind. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differ, for star differs from star in glory. So it is, he gets to the point, thank you, Pastor Paul. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. When the human body dies, when the human body is here on earth, it will die. It is perishable. It will go away. It will decay and it will rot. The physicality of it will be exterminated. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul connects this to the reality of the resurrection, saying, if you are alive, if you were born, and you're going to die at some point, he says, it only makes sense, it's only natural in regard to Jesus Christ and what we saw in his life and death, that when your body dies, 
it will also resurrect. The physical will go away. The spiritual will remain. This is the example we saw in Jesus. This is what will be true for all of mankind. He says, thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul goes through that long explanation to communicate as best as he can that because we're in Adam, we die. Adam, who's our first father, the champion of the human race, made in perfection, in God's image, in communion and fellowship with the Lord, and yet chose to sin, was deceived, and chose to give up that relationship with the Lord. And so every person after bears that same DNA, that same curse. We're born in our sin. So, like we look like our father Adam, we're going to die. In Christ, when we believe upon Jesus, the second Adam, the one who overcame death and, and defeated death, when we believe upon him for salvation, we then look like him. We will look like him and we will live eternally like him and with him. And so he says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is interesting. Remember how as, as Jesus was walking through his ministry with the disciples, how they would constantly ask him, is, is it now? Now are you going to establish your kingdom? Now are you going to usher in this reign of you as the king? And, and we're your boys, right? We've been with you here for three years. Like Jesus, we're the ones who've been alongside of you while everybody else was laughing and turning their backs on you. And we've made the bold declarations that where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, we've done this stuff. So like, come on, is your kingdom now so that we can sort of like get on your right side and your left side, right? We'll be the guys right behind you. And we're like, yeah, Jesus is the king. Remember how in Luke chapter 15, Jesus goes, hey, some people are gonna say, hey, the kingdom's here or the kingdom's there. Jesus goes, the kingdom is not something physical. He says, the kingdom is among you. It's even just in your midst in the relationship that you have with one another. Now, is there going to be a physical kingdom? Yes, absolutely. At the time appointed when Christ comes down and brings with him the new heavens and the earth and the host of heaven with him and establishes that kingdom here on a redeemed, renewed earth, like this, but just a million times better, the veil pulled back, Sin removed from this situation so that there is perfection as it was in the Garden of Eden. So it shall be with Jesus at his return. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb. The kid's going to play with the snake, the adder. There's no poison. There's no more sin. There's going to be reconciliation of relationships. There's no more crying, no more sorrow. This is the kingdom that Jesus will bring with him. Until that time, 
The kingdom isn't something physical. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The kingdom, Jesus says to his disciples, is among you. You're supposed to live with one another in the way that I've described to you the kingdom functions. Behold, he tells you, verse 51, Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. When Paul talks about these mysteries, you know, in Ephesians 5, he talks about the marriage uh, between a man and a woman as being a mystery. But the word that's being used for mystery is musterion. And, and it's not just a mystery that has no understanding or a mystery that's remaining a mystery. It's a mystery that's being revealed. It's something that's being uncovered and the truth of it being revealed. And so here's what Paul says. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written from the book of Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul makes reference to that eschatological timetable, the understanding that when Christ comes, that is when the resurrection of the dead is going to occur. That is when we will all be changed. If we are alive at that moment, we'll be changed to become like Jesus. Our perishable bodies replaced by imperishable. The mortal being done away with, the spiritual being eternal. And the understanding, again, to reinforce it as Paul teaches it, at the coming of Christ, that is when the kingdom is coming. I'll let you do the rest of the math on that one. The sting of death is sin. The reason that death occurred in our world is because of sin. If sin had never occurred, if Adam and Eve had never given in to the temptation of, of the snake in the garden, if sin had never entered into the story of mankind, it just would have been perfection. It just would have been the Garden of Eden for the rest of time as God created it to be. But because sin entered into the world, death enters into the world. The power of that sin is the law. Remember that the law was written for us as a schoolmaster to lead us to the understanding that we needed a redeemer. We needed someone to bring us back into relationship with God because nobody can fulfill the law. Nobody can do all the right things to make God happy. It's just impossible. And so the, death, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, and mark this, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the victor. He's the champion. He's the second Adam. He's the one who, born in perfection, remained perfect. He didn't fall to the temptation of sin. He was tempted in all points as we were, Hebrews says. Jesus had every opportunity to sin. And as he was on earth, he was in the flesh. He felt all the feels. He was tempted with all the temptations. Everything that we've experienced, Jesus experienced, and in the flesh could have sinned, but didn't, was obedient to the Father. And so because of that, because of that truth, Jesus is victorious. He has already won. The end of the story is complete. 
How many times in scripture do, 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 do you hear the phrase, you could look it up and I don't know the number right now, but one of the most common phrases in all of scripture is do not fear. Do not fear. What's that? 365 times. Do not fear. Okay. That's an amazing, amazing command of the Lord. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a command of the Lord to do not fear. Why shouldn't we be fearful? Now, mark this. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever be scared of things, right? Like when you're walking on a cliff and you're going to fall off and everything like that. Hey, good. That's your instinct to go, hey, don't lean over too far that way. I'm going to fall, right? Some have that instinct. Some don't. Or watching a scary movie going, that's scary. You know, like that's dumb. Don't watch scary movies, right? Like, okay. But in terms of fear, in terms of living life from this position of fear, how often do we hear do not fear in the scriptures? Constantly, over and over and over again. Why? Why can we live without fear? Because Jesus is victorious, not just over sin, but over death. His resurrection proves that he defeats death and, and has victory in every area of life. And if he has raised up from the dead and we are found in him, then we have the same promise that we'll be raised up from the dead. That's why Paul then finishes out this chapter in verse 58 by saying, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Very often we've been told within the evangelical world that in Christ, our salvation, uh, we don't practice religion, but we have this relationship, right? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Is it? Absolutely it is, yes. But religion has gotten a bad name. Because what has been defined as religion is, is a ritual separated from truth, okay? If you don't believe in Jesus and you still go through the ritual of coming to church, singing the songs, standing up, bowing your head in prayer, taking communion, all those kinds of things, but it's not connected to the, your faith in Jesus and to the truth, then yeah, it's just empty religion. It means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't hold anything for you because you haven't believed upon Jesus. But if you've believed upon Jesus, you have a root in you that connects you to the story in a way that all of the religious practices, the devotional practices, taking communion, saying the Lord's Prayer, worshiping God, studying the Bible, being in fellowship with people, all of those things, all of these religious practices... They have meaning to us. There's a definition for them. They have value to us. That's why Paul says, be steadfast, be immovable. In the things that I've handed down to you, the traditions that have been handed down to you, practice communion this way. Do it this way, because here's what it means. Don't allow these other influences to come in and to draw you away from what it means. Don't allow these legalistic traditions that aren't connected to the truth of who Jesus is to have dominion in the church. He says, but do stay steadfast, immovable in this truth that Christ is victorious over all. So you don't have to live in fear, but stay connected, stay abounding, he says, in the work of the Lord. Consume yourself with the things of the Lord. 
you know, I talked about the, the whole idea of these mysteries, the things that we encounter in scripture. We just go, I just don't understand that. I don't just get, that. I just don't get that. If I can encourage you in anything, it's in making time, carving out time for yourself, not just to check off the box that says, I read my devotional for the day. I went to church on Wednesday and Sunday. Carve out time for yourself to just be with the Lord. To perhaps just sit and just sit in the tension, sit in the, the uncertainty of the things that you don't understand about this life and let Jesus meet you in that place and show you through his word and his indwelling spirit how Jesus answers all of those things. The things that we don't understand, the things that we don't get, the pain that we experience that doesn't make sense to a loving God, all of those things, sit in that. Be quiet with that. Be steadfast in the truth that Jesus is victorious over death and, and the resurrection is true and let him come and minister to you in those things, those places where you are uncertain. Paul had said, bad company corrupts good morals, ruins good morals, corrupts good character. Rather than looking for the temporary pleasures that we might have in the world to satisfy things in us and potentially draw us away from the Lord, be a peculiar person as, as the Christians were known to be. Sit and rather than watching another Netflix show, sit and allow the Lord just to minister to you and be quiet. Turn on quiet music, whatever helps you focus on those kinds of things. But just spend time with the Lord. Read the word, let it sink in, but don't just do it to check it off the list. Sit and meditate on it. That's what Psalm 1 talks about, meditating on the word of the Lord. This is what David would do. David, David didn't even have the gospel. He didn't even have the New Testament writings. And it says that David would stay up and lay on his bed and just, just love the law. This law that brings death and the law that is, that is not the promise of life, David would just sit there and revel in it. He would just go, oh, the law of the Lord is so good. And he'd just stay up at night singing praises to the Lord for, for the law. With the reality that Jesus is victorious, we should be people who should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. I'll leave you with this. I promise you, this is the last thing. Luke chapter 15. If you want to turn there, you can. I said the discussion of the kingdom was in chapter 15. It's actually in Luke 17. What Jesus talks about here in verse 15 is one of his parables. Luke chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 are some of the most punchy, powerful uh, parts of the gospel. My goodness, I, I, I can live in this section of scripture in terms of what it means to be a disciple and, and then the mission that Jesus has given us. Paul has just said in 1 Corinthians 15, always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to, to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Is Jesus saying that those 99 people are actually righteous and they don't need to repent? No. He's saying that those 99 people who present themselves as being righteous, who claim that they don't need to repent, like the rich young ruler who said, I've done all the things of the law. I've followed all the points of the law. And Jesus goes, oh, really? Okay, well, then just give up all you have to the poor and come follow me. And the young man says, I can't do that. And he goes away sorrowful because he couldn't give up his possessions. In this story, this parable, Jesus drives home Paul's point in reality. One person, one person who genuinely believes upon Jesus and surrenders their life and is saved because of the testimony that we give of the victory of Jesus, that one person is worth way more than a room full of people who are all playing the game but aren't actually on the team. One person. I have to be reminded of that constantly because in the position that we're in, man, numbers are fun. (laughs) Numbers are great. When you have more people in the room, it feels better. It's louder. There's more activity. All that stuff is great, and that's fine. And I said last week, and I hold to it, I would love to have as many people here as we can handle and and to minister to as many people as possible because that's not going to come from me. It's going to come from you. It's going to mean that you're out sharing your faith with people and the Lord's using you to draw people toward himself. But I'm far more concerned that one person who needs to be told about the love of Jesus, the victory of Jesus, the power of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, that, that one person has their life changed than a room of a hundred people who all think they're okay, but don't actually do the work of believing upon Jesus. So Paul says, always be about the Lord's work, knowing that no matter what it is, however big it is or however small it is, you're not doing that work in vain. I was reminded by a good friend when I had the opportunity to baptize him. You know, he said, if the only reason you were at this church was so that I could hear the gospel and be baptized. He goes, it's completely worth it. In your life, if you ever, ever have the opportunity to just pray with one person, it's completely worth it. To share the gospel with one person, your entire life is worth it. Amen?